Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We'll be reading from Hebrews 11, verses 29 through 38. That is Hebrews 11, 29 through 38. Starting at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All right. So today, I am going to talk about a topic. Uh, The topic is suffering. All right. So now at the outset... I want to be clear that I am not an expert in suffering. I'm not. I'm certain that there's people here present who uh, have suffered far beyond what I have thus far. So this question of suffering has confounded brilliant minds for generations. So my intent here today is not to answer the question of why every instance of suffering takes place. It would be impossible. Instead, my angle is this. What should a faithful follower of Jesus expect out of a life when it comes to pain and suffering. So what should we expect as a faithful follower? What should we expect when it comes to pain and suffering? And so the title of today's lesson, Will Everything Be All Right? Doctrine of Pain, right? (laughs) Right, so chapter 11 of Hebrews is written as an encouragement to Christ's followers. It reviews how faith has led people in the Old Testament to hold on to the promises of God And we see listed here a lineup of men and women who experienced great heroic triumphs as they, by faith, held tight to the promises of God. For that reason, this chapter is commonly known as the Hall of Faith. So remember that Hall of Faith is what Hebrews 11 is commonly known as. And so starting at verse 29, and I'll I'll break down a few of the, let's say, the first three verses here. Um... By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So 
I believe many people are already familiar with what this is referring to. Moses being led by God to bring the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and the event where God parts the Red Sea, allowing the Hebrews to escape the pursuing Egyptian army on dry ground. And then God closing those waters when the Egyptian army tried to get through drowning them. So many of us were already familiar with that one. Verse 30, it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So again, another brief overview. Jericho was an enemy city surrounded by high fortress walls. God had the Israelite army led by Joshua to march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, after they circled the city and blew trumpets, God causes the fortress walls of Jericho to supernaturally collapse, allowing Joshua's army to enter in and conquer the city. And then we have verse 31, which says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab was a prostitute that lived inside the city of Jericho. This was before Joshua's army destroyed the city. Rahab heard that the God of Israel intended to hand the city over, uh, the city of Jericho over to Israel. And because Rahab believed in the might of God, and what God would do to Jericho, she helped protect two Israelite spies who were sent to survey the city. When the Israelites finally took the city, Rahab and her family were the only, one, uh, were the only lives spared. Rahab later marries into uh, the Israelites and goes from being a prostitute to becoming an ancestor of Jesus himself. And so we get to verse 32, and it says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So the believers this chapter is addressed to are commended to remember these same examples and be encouraged by them to hold their faith steady in the same way to know and remember the miraculous victories God can work through his followers. We get all these examples of heroic triumphs by those who held strong to their faith in God, but then there is this fascinating transition, uh, one that I've always just found very interesting. So in verse 35, we see it says, and this is the first half of verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. So again, this is sort of speaking more of the victories, but then that transition right in between the 35th verse, where it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so it's this part that feeds into our topic of what's to be expected in the life of a faithful Christian. It's just very interesting. We, we see all these heroic examples, but right behind them we see these examples of things that don't seem as heroic, people being sawn in two, uh, people being killed with the sword, but yet both 
the heroic triumphs and the suffering is held in high esteem. One is not sort of held lower than the other. They're both held in high esteem. And so right now there is, there is some Christian folklore that's going around, and it's been circulating for a very long time. The folklore in question presents the idea that becoming a Christian and doing everything perfect as a Christian exempts that Christian from suffering and tragedy and guarantees a series of victory after victory after victory. That we should never lack for food, that our dream career should always come to fruition, that we are guaranteed a long life regardless of what we eat, that when our loved ones get in the car, they are guaranteed to make it to their destination safely. This piece of Christian folklore also states that if you're a Christian who finds his or herself in a season where you're not experiencing these victories, or if some really bad tragedy has struck, well, then it must be that you are in sin under some sort of judgment from God. Scripture points to the fact that God does indeed punish evil, and when it comes to those who are saved through Christ, the Lord will bring correction when we wander down a wrong path. As stated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 6, I'll read here, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. But what if you are not wandering down some wrong path? So in the verses above, we see clearly, yeah, God does correct uh, his children and other areas of the Bible. God does punish evil. But the question for today is, what if you're not wandering down some wrong path? What if you are doing the right things? What we read in Hebrews 11, of those who were tortured and sawn in half, there's nothing saying that these people were doing anything wrong. It's the opposite. I think about the many times I've heard a person describe how they once considered themselves a Christian but lost their faith because of some instance or instances of suffering. And it isn't just someone who's relatively new to Christianity that describes a loss of faith due to suffering. And it isn't just someone who has had a, a general belief in God but lost what little faith they had due to tremendous pain. But sometimes it's people who have considered themselves Christians for many years, some even growing up in church, you'll hear something like, well, where was God in this terrible situation? I prayed and I prayed, but God didn't heal my sister. God didn't deliver me from A, B, C. And I get it. I do. I myself have had numerous moments where I felt confident God was there, but the moment some serious danger lurks, I question whether God was really there. So as I listen to people unfold stories of losing their faith, I often see a recurrent theme. That is, the understanding that to be a kind person in everyday life and to do all the things God says to do, that should exempt us from tragedy and should protect us from all serious injury, whether that serious injury be physical or emotional. And that there should not be a long turnaround between the time we pray for something and the time the prayer gets answered. A lot of us across the Christian landscape seem to believe these things are what the Bible promises. But this expectation is somewhat bizarre considering how full the Bible is of suffering. Jesus says pointedly to his followers in John 16 and 33, in this world you will have tribulation. So in this world you will have tribulation. Tribulation is speaking of trouble, affliction. In this world you will have affliction. Luke 9 and 23, a verse we've explored some weeks ago, we see Jesus speaking. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus just got done explaining that he was on a road leading to suffering, abuse, and death. And he says in this verse that to follow him, Jesus, is to follow him into dangers, to follow him into some sort of suffering. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, this is Paul addressing the young pastor Timothy. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good. And it goes on from there. And so the interesting thing here is, as we see this advice to Paul, uh, from Paul to Timothy, he's telling Timothy, hey, there will come times of difficulty. And these times of difficulty, he's not saying that this is because of something that uh, you're doing, Timothy, some sort of sin that uh, you are participating in. It's because of the evil of the world. It's because of the evil that's in people. And so we have Stephen, who is introduced in Acts chapter 6 as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Stephen, spoke out against the Jews of that day who had denied Jesus as the Savior. His words enraged the crowd. Now, some today would hold to the belief that if the Holy Spirit is operating through you, nothing can harm you. Well, the Holy Spirit is operating through Stephen. What happens to him in this instance? We see in Acts 7 and 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And so what happened to Stephen contradicts the expectation of some of us believers today. The Holy Spirit could very well have protected Stephen from death, but chose not to. Suffering or even the threat of suffering has a way of throwing our expectations of God into chaos. Now, by contrast, let's see Stephen's reaction in the face of his own death. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, it says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that terminology, he fell asleep, the New Testament often uh, speaks of the death of Christians that way. It uses the, t- the terminology, fell to sleep. This is the interesting thing, too. To contrast the fate of Stephen to another, let's look at Apostle Paul in Acts 14. In verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. So here Paul is doing the Lord's work just as Stephen. And here Paul is stoned just like Stephen. But God miraculously raises Paul up. And Paul goes right back into the city he was dragged out of and continues his business as though nothing happened. But for some reason, God did not raise Stephen up after his death. Isn't it an interesting parallel? This speaks to a reality that we see today as well as in our main scripture. Uh, God absolutely does the miraculous. God absolutely delivers his children from danger. God absolutely does heal. God does all these amazing things, but sometimes in the lives of those whom the Holy Spirit is working through the strongest, like Stephen, sometimes God decides not to deliver from danger and death. Sometimes God decides not to heal. 
And so many times we do not know why. While I'm in Acts 7, I'll continue from verse 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 22 says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saving that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And again, we have that word tribulations. We heard it when Jesus says pointedly to the followers, uh, to his followers in John 16 and 33. We reviewed that verse already, but here it is again. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace and that in the world you will have tribulation. And there's that word tribulation again, sufferings, afflictions. But despite these tribulations, we do not see an attitude of misery being promoted. It's not woe is me. It's not why are you doing this to me, God. That's not the attitude we see. We see Paul, as stated in Acts 17 and 22, encouraging the believers to continue in the faith regardless of the tribulations. In Acts 5 and 41, we see another example of the attitude modeled for us in the face of suffering. After the apostles are beaten for spreading the message of Christ. So Acts 5, 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council after they had just been beaten rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How many of us has, uh, have had that sort of, uh, how can I say, grace and cheer uh, after dealing with suffering? <laughs> right, so they were rejoicing, not doubting that God was really with them, not asking why God didn't shield them, but rejoicing. And then even after the beating, they went right back to doing God's business. They didn't slow down. As stated in the following verse, which is verse 42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they just went right back to doing, right after the beating, went right back to doing (laughs) their mission before God. Right. So now some people might say, yes, when they're suffering as a consequence of persecution of your faith, it's easier to see some sort of purpose in enduring the suffering. You can experience Or look at such stories and say, look how that person stood for Christ. Look at the strong example it set for Jesus' good name. Look how that testimony inspired others to know Christ, right? But what about the sort of suffering that doesn't seem to serve any clear purpose of glorifying God? What about when you're doing everything right and you come down with some bizarre, painful physical ailment? Or someone gets hit by a car that glides off the street and onto the sidewalk? Uh, something that happened uh, recently, not too not too long ago at IUN, and that's what happened. It was a police chase. I don't know if anybody heard of it, but the person that was being chased spiraled like right off of the street, you know, and onto the campus and hit somebody and killed them. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's just you know, so, just think you just woke up that morning. And it's you know, it's supposed to be a regular day. Yeah, yeah. Or someone saved and saved to, and, and all of these are examples of things that you know I've heard even recently. Someone saved and saved to finally have the family home of their dreams built, and this new home is soon burnt to ashes in a wildfire. <laughs> or a maniac decides to go on a shooting spree, and a woman simply sitting in the back seat of a car is shot and killed by this maniac. Or just some freak accident that you can't attribute to a person, like someone who's walking along on a winter day, 
who gets struck and killed by a falling icicle, right? Should we be shaken up by instances of suffering that don't seem to serve any godly purpose the way someone being actively persecuted for their faith does? This brings to mind something I've always found incredibly fascinating in Scripture, that is cities of refuge. So we're going to go to Joshua chapter 20. And it says here, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. I've always found this, this topic of cities of refuge fascinating. Here we see talk of these cities. These cities were established as places for people to flee when they unintentionally killed a person. The scriptures provide some example scenarios. We'll look at one found in Deuteronomy 19, starting at verse 4. It says, If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, and when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and this is the example, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So are you catching the example that's being given? Somebody's chopping wood, they're in the forest with their neighbor, the axe head flies off the handle and strikes the neighbor, killing him, right? And it's, yes, and so in an instance like this, you can flee to one of these cities so that you will not, number one, be struck down by the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood refers to the family, uh, somebody in the family of the person who was slain. They would have the, the enforcement to go and actually kill the person who killed their family member. But God is saying, it, basically, you know, if it's an accidental death, here's where you can flee to to escape that fate. So I've always found this example in particular very striking for many reasons. I'd ask myself, couldn't God stop the axe head from slipping from the handle? If God chose, he could stop the axe head in mid-flight before it struck anyone. But God commands these cities of refuge be set aside, meaning that God fully acknowledges the existence of these tragic freak accidents that result in people's deaths. And there's nothing saying that these accidental deaths are some sort of divine punishment for sin. And we're not given the reason as to why God allows such tragic accidental deaths. Simply that God knows it will happen, and in ancient Israel sets up places for those who commit accidental manslaughter. We know parallels today of accidental manslaughter. A child finds his father's gun and plays around with it and, and accidentally shoots his brother. And we've heard various variations of the same sort of story. And at times I hear these stories and, and I stop and wonder, why God? But as we see with the cities of refuge, God is fully aware that these things happen, but we're not told why. We're not told. In Luke 13, Jesus points to a tragic incident in the area of Jerusalem called Siloam. A tower collapsed, killing 18 people. It was common thought at the time that physical affliction was caused by sin. So Jesus challenges this notion by pointing to the 18 people who were killed by the collapsed tower. So in verse 4 of Luke 13, it says, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. And then verse 5 says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is indicating that this tragedy did not happen to those 18 people because they were worse sinners than anyone else. 
And Jesus goes on to use the example of their death as a metaphor for the destruction that would come to those who did not repent of sin. So Jesus tears down the assumption that the people who died were somehow more sinful than anyone else still among the living, but Jesus still doesn't state a divine reason as to why those particular people died. In the example of the cities of refuge, we're not told why God allows deadly freak accidents, but we're shown that God clearly knows these things happen. In the example from Luke 13, we see another freak accident that results in the death of 18 people, but again, we are not shown why. I think all this naturally leads to another question, and the question was expressed, I think, by a woman calling into a Christian radio show. It's one of my favorite shows called In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this woman called into the show, and she expressed that she was a Christian, but had a difficult time trusting God. And I'm going to sort of relay the sentiment of her question uh, in a sort of exhausted tone. She goes, you know, I know God can protect us from harm and keep us safe. But since God can do all these things, but chooses not to sometimes, then, then what is the point? I pray for my spouse when he leaves for work, that he will make it there safely and back home safely. But if I cannot be guaranteed absolutely that God would absolutely keep him safe, how can I trust God? Why even pray? What's the point? Right? <laughs> and I really appreciated the exhaustion in her tone when she was asking a question, because it is an exhausting thing to think about. Uh, it's really a crossroads type of question for the Christian. If God can and does do amazing, miraculous things sometimes, but at times allows harm and suffering and even death to happen to even his most devoted children, then how can I trust God? Why do I even serve God? What's the point? So in addressing this question, I'll return to our main scripture reading in Hebrews 11, and I'll just read along to it because we've already went through it before, so I'll I quickly go through again. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fill me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched power, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But now we're going to read beyond verse 38. We're going to verse 39, which states, And all these things, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, so what is that saying? What is that saying? So all these biblical heroes held on and endured great challenges through faith and the promises of God, but they did not live to see the fullness of God's promises unfold completely. And so verse 40, where it says, since God had provided something better for us, it seems to indicate that the New Testament believers, as well as us today, got to see a fulfillment of the promise that these heroes of the Old Testament did not and we read on into the next chapter, Hebrews 12, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses is referring back to all of those heroes and, and those who suffered in the Old Testament, um, hanging on to the promise of God. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That language of running with endurance uh, Paul is referencing the sports of that time, a foot race. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and, and let us do it uh, keeping in remembrance those who came before us, who set such a great example. And then the second verse, it says, Look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the promise that those figures of the Old Testament didn't live to see. It is Jesus who forgives sins completely and is the door to eternal life. The rhetorical question that Pastor David presented some months ago to us is this. Do we follow God for who he is or for what we get from him? Or phrased another way, is our ultimate focus the gifts or the gift giver? Acts 7, verse 59, we've been there. I'm just going to read it again. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the face of death itself, it was the Lord Jesus who Stephen prized. And more than just that, in verse 60, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Even as he was dying, his prayer is that Jesus forgives his murderers. He's praying that God's will be done, and God's will is that sinners turn away from their sin. And returning to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That part about the joy that was set before him, the joy was the redemption of mankind making a way for humanity to be saved from hell and to live forever with him. And for this joy, he endured the cross. It says despising the shame, meaning that Jesus disregarded the humiliation and pain that would come with the cross. And so he endured the cross anyway, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain. I remember there being times when I thought about pain and how God related to pain. I understood and believed that God knew what pain was. But I also wondered if God knew what pain felt like, the way we know what pain feels like. Uh, years later, I would come to understand that Jesus is God who came to humanity and lived among us in human flesh. So while we don't get complete answers as to why all suffering takes place, like why do people suffer in ways that seem completely purposeless, uh, we can still have complete confidence that God knows what suffering is, not just in some sort of intellectual sense, not as some sort of, this is how I engineered it to work, but we can know that God literally knows what pain feels like. A person in poverty can know that the God who owns all creation still knows what poverty feels like because Jesus was first born into poverty. You have some physical condition or you're suffering some injury that brings you excruciating pain. When we look at the way Jesus was beaten, even before being crucified, the way he was whipped and the flesh those whips tore from his body, and then the actual crucifixion itself, we can know that God knows what excruciating pain and suffering feels like. And that consequently, he is with his children in a special way through whatever afflictions we experience, whether those afflictions feel purposeful or purposeless. So to the original question, what should a faithful follower of Jesus expect out of a life when it comes to pain and suffering? We return one last time to Hebrews 11. In verse 33, it says, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and then 34, quenched the power of fire. 
Uh, does anybody have any idea what the quench the power of fire might refer to? Okay, so it refers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, we have King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, a very evil man, who decides to set up an approximately 90-foot-tall golden statue that everyone was to worship as, at a designated time. It was determined who, that whoever did not immediately fall down and worship this statue would be thrown into a furnace alive and burnt alive. And then there came some people whispering in the ear of the king. In Daniel 3, verse 12, we see, and these are the people whispering in the king's ear, there are certain Jews whom you have pointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar had these three men brought before him. He gave them an ultimatum, worship before the gold statue or be burnt alive. In verse 16, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In verse 17, it says, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, it says, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar tosses all three men into the furnace. And then verse 24, and I'll just read here. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Verse 25 says, He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So this is a pagan king, a very evil man, and now this king has gone from tossing these men into the fire to glorifying, uplifting the name of their god. And so here's another grand victory that results in God's name being uplifted among an evil empire. But the part I want us to, to pay special attention to is the but if not part. But if not. The three men tell the king, our God will deliver us. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or that statue. In other words, even if we're burnt alive, we only serve the one true God. So when it comes to that question, you know, what should our expectations be in this life in terms of uh, of uh, suffering in terms of pain. You know, if we're doing everything that we know that we're supposed to be doing, if we're being the, the Christians that we know that we're supposed to, to be, what is our expectation in terms of suffering? So the faith Christ calls us to is an even-if type faith, right? The same even-if faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So with everything that we just reviewed now, talking about pain, talking about suffering, talking about suffering that, uh, that seems like it has purpose. Like, I think as Christians, we can see our brothers and sisters who suffer persecution, and we can craft for them 
but we can also sort of see a purpose, you know, an ultimate purpose. But what about when it seems purposeless? What about those random acts? You know, some maniac just goes on a shooting spree. You know, what about these things? Should these things shake our faith? Should these things discourage us from God? But again, going back to this even if type faith, what does this even if type faith mean? It means that we do pray and we do believe for the salvation of people. We pray and believe that God heals and rescues and does all sorts of wonderful and miraculous things. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if that person who I so love doesn't receive the healing I so desperately am praying for, even if I'm losing everything, even if the sky is falling, even if I die, Christ himself is the prize. Christ himself is the entire point. So keep praying, right? Even in the midst of knowing, yes, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of understanding that things don't always work out the way that we want them to work out, I still, even more than ever before, uh, believe that God is faithful, believe that God's will be done, believe that God is good. And that's the sort of faith that we are called to, no matter what is happening, the, the sky can literally be collapsing, but that's not the point. This world is a fallen world, it's tainted by sin, and until Jesus comes again, it will not be set completely right. And so we're not going to see absolute perfection in this era right now. And so we trust in the Lord. He is the prize. He is the entire point. Not the good things he gives us, but we love those good things, don't we? <laughs> if I may, too, the Bible also says all those who choose to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Because it's not a perfect world here. You know, our, our time is short. And that's why he promises eternal life in the kingdom, and as it says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and will be love, peace, and joy, and uh, those who choose to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution at some point, different, different forms for everyone, and uh, God's long-suffering, not willing that any perish, but that we all come to repentance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have a question. What is this? Do we have a city of refuge right now? Is there such a place? Or is there a thought about such a place? Well, in the literal sense, I mean, where do you go? In, in the literal sense, not quite. In the spiritual sense, Jesus is that city of refuge. Okay. Right? Okay. In the spiritual sense. Yeah. And so. Oh, yes. Yes. That's the ultimate refuge. <laughs> right. Right, we are, our, our spirit lives on. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.